that. You know, many people don't realize that these last days of October are actually incredibly significant uh, for uh, the evangelical church. Uh, This is the day that is set aside, in fact, on a church calendar as Reformation Day, Reformation Sunday. It's the day that marks uh, the beginning of the great Protestant Reformation. And I became really, I, I think the correct word is convicted about this a few years ago, that we don't do a very good job in the evangelical church of um, educating people and explaining to people the significance of uh, the Reformation. And and I know for some of you this morning, you may say, well, does it really matter? Uh, The answer uh, to that this morning is an emphatic yes, it matters. It matters in a significant way. And and my goal over the next uh, few minutes before we uh, celebrate the Lord's table together is to try to convince you just how much it matters Uh, in the church, that there was this event uh, that began almost 500 years ago that we refer to as the Reformation. One author writes about a youth conference that he attended where the host started the event by walking on stage and declaring, it's not about doctrine, it's about Jesus. Uh, Those words are both sad and misleading. The author goes on to say, we don't have to choose between caring about doctrine and loving Jesus. The two pursuits are not opposed to each other. In fact, they are inseparable. I mentioned this to you last week. We can only grow in our love for our Savior as we learn more of who he is and what he has accomplished for us. A concern for truth doesn't take us away from a deeper relationship with him. It leads us closer to him in greater worship, adoration, and obedience. And I hope you can say uh, dogmatically this morning, amen, to those words. Doctrine matters. Uh, This uh, event 500 years ago that began the Reformation, it matters. It matters in a big way uh, to the evangelical church. And with that in mind this morning, uh, today I want to introduce you to a little monk in a faraway country uh, that hammered something very important to a door, of a, a, a large wooden door actually, almost 500 years ago, on October 31st actually. And that influenced the way that uh, today we will celebrate the Lord's table, uh, the events of that particular day. Uh, That our relationship with Jesus as our Savior is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Sola fide. It is faith alone. And that's a very significant thing because it's a free gift. It's not through anything good that you or I do. We're not capable of doing enough good to merit our salvation. It is through faith alone that we are justified. This little monk's name, you've probably guessed it by name now, uh, was Martin Luther. He was born in Eiselben, about 120 miles southeast or southwest of what we know today as a modern Berlin. He was born to parents Margaret and Hans Luther, He was raised in Mansfield where his father worked uh, basically as a peasant, worked his way up as he worked in the local uh, copper mines. Uh, Hans uh, sent Luther, uh, his son Martin, to a Latin school. And then when Martin was only 13 years old, he sent him to the University of Erfurt to study law. I think it was incredibly significant, much like parents today especially parents that are, that are living in third world countries who know that life is rough, that life is, is, is difficult and hard, and they want something better for their parents. That's what Hans wanted for his young son, Martin. And so he sent him at the age of 13 to study law. 
there Martin earned uh, both his baccalaureate and his master's degree in the shortest amount of time that was allowed by the university. He was an incredibly brilliant man. He proved so adept at public debates that he earned the nickname the philosopher. Pretty incredible thing, right? At the age of 13. And then in uh, 1505, his life took a dramatic turn uh, when the 21-year-old uh, Luther fought his way through a severe thunderstorm on the road to Erfurt. A bolt of lightning struck the ground near him. And history records that he prayed to the patron saint, St. Anne. He prayed, uh, help me. He screamed, if you will help me, patron St. Anne, I will become a monk. Now, I'm here this morning to tell you, don't ever pray something that you're not willing to do, all right? Probably would be good for those of you that don't have any intention of becoming a monk, never to pray that prayer. And if you know the story of Luther, you know that uh, uh, two weeks later, uh, he was saved, and two weeks later, Luther fulfilled his vow. He gave away all of his possessions, and he entered a monastery to be a monk. And though he had intended to study law and his father was incredibly excited about that, about that type of career, because he had narrowly escaped death by lightning, he changed his mind. And in spite of his father's uh, stern objections, he became an Augustinian monk in 1506. Here's what you need to understand about Luther. Luther was an extraordinarily successful monk. Now, you may be sitting there going, what does that look like to be an extraordinarily successful monk? There's a lot of things I'd like to be successful at. Uh, Being a monk is probably not one of them. Many years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Thailand and had an opportunity actually to to see uh, some of these uh, these monks and some of their uh, uh, things that they perform uh, for the general uh, public. Uh, He would later say, Uh, that if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was him. He plunged himself very deeply into prayer and into fasting. He went without sleep. He endured a bone-chilling cold without a blanket, just punishing himself, thinking that if he did these things, somehow he would attain a, a higher level of spirituality and somehow he would earn his way into heaven. In fact, historians tell us that outwardly Luther was building up a successful monastic and academic career, but inwardly he was troubled by a conviction of sin that his diligence and monastery life could not relieve. He was very intent on being forgiven of all of his sins. So he went to that little booth that they call the confessional. And he went often, often for several hours at a time. You can imagine the priest that he was confessing to was probably like, leave. All right, I've heard it, leave. But historians record that several hours at a time he would go and he would confess every sin that could possibly be brought to his mind. And although he sought by these means to love God fully, he found no consolation at all. He was increasingly terrified of the wrath of God. In fact, he wrote at a later time, when, it's touched, when it is touched by this passing indignation of the eternal, the soul feels, feels and drinks nothing but eternal punishment. See, the more Martin Luther studied his own heart, the more evil he found there. Which probably would not be a bad thing for many of us to do today to understand that we are not in and of ourselves good people. We are desperately wicked, and he became convinced of that. 
He was discovering in his own heart what the Bible uh, describes as depravity in many, many texts. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And yet our world then and now tells us that we are basically good people. I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, we're not basically good people. And Martin Luther was figuring that out. We sin because we are sinners. Sin is not the result of our environment or of the childhood that we grew up in or our socioeconomic status. Sin is who we are. We were born in sin. The psalmist said, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ephesians 2.3, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are not basically good. We are wicked people. And because of that wickedness, we are separated from God. You can imagine the turmoil that was going on in this young monk's mind. Although he was trying to do all of these good things to somehow it, it attain to this level of spirituality, nothing worked. During his early years, history records, whenever Luther read what would become the famous Reformation text, some of you historians know this, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther's eyes were drawn not to the word faith, but to the word righteous. Who, after all, could live a righteous faith? But those who were already righteous, and the text was clear on the matter, the righteous shall live by faith, and he knew he wasn't righteous, and he was frustrated by that. You see, the church that he was a part of taught, preached, that man was able to deal with his own sin by doing certain things. And we still live that way, many of us. We think that somehow we can deal with this thing called sin. And the church taught that by doing certain things, by keeping the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, communion, penance, extreme unction, holy orders, they taught that saving grace was conferred via these actions. Without any regard for the heart, as long as you did those things, you would somehow attain righteousness. And so Martin Luther kept jumping through all these hoops only to be incredibly frustrated. In fact, he remarked, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, by which I had been taught according to the custom and use of all teachers that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous and he knew it and there was this incredible dilemma that was going on. Meanwhile, he'd been ordered to go and get his doctorate in the Bible and become a professor at Wittenberg University. And during his lectures on the Psalms and then a study of the book of Romans, he began to work his way through this dilemma when he wrote, At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. He goes on to write, Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open when I realized it's not about me doing enough good to attain righteousness. It's all about God and him giving me something that I don't deserve. It's a free gift. I can't help but pause there for just a moment and wonder how many of you are here in this auditorium this morning on this Reformation Sunday and you are trying to do just enough good so that somehow, someday, you can just slip into heaven. 
to live your life that way is ultimately to be eternally frustrated because we cannot do enough good. And so Luther came to the conclusion that the justice of God does not refer, as he had been taught, to the punishment of sinners. It means that the justice or righteousness of the righteous is not their own, but it's God's. The righteousness of God is what is given to those who live by faith. It is given not because they are righteous, nor because they fulfill uh, the obligations or the demands of divine uh, justice, but simply because God wishes to give it to us. It's a free gift. Can you imagine this little monk? And he discovers this truth. All of his life he had been taught this. A brilliant man. He had, he had done all of these things. And finally, for the first time, he realizes that he's been wrong and he understands the truth of Scripture. What an incredible, incredible thing. As a result of this discovery, Luther tells us, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. That's an incredible thing. Now, here's where the Reformation comes in line. Luther could have kept that truth that he discovered in the Word of God, that he rediscovered. He could have kept that all to himself, his new understanding of justification. In fact, what we would do now is we would write a book with a really snazzy title. And we'd go on Nightline in 2020 and and, and all of these programs, and we would talk about what we'd rediscovered and The problem was this was not incredibly palatable information for him to give out. History tells us that his his colleagues at Wittenberg, both on the theological faculty and in the monastery, this is a funny thing, they actually supported him and his views. (laughs) An unbelievable thing. Even though they were part of a system that totally opposed what he was saying, these people were supporting him, at least privately. And so his church life, his ministry life, kind of went on undisturbed. It wasn't like there was a satellite dish outside of the monastery and, you know, they came and and Anderson Cooper interviewed him and all of a sudden it spread like wildfire. He just kind of kept it contained right there and everybody was appreciating what he said. It wasn't long, though, before the revolution in Luther's heart and mind would play itself literally all over Europe and then ultimately now go to the ends of the globe. In fact, it all started on All Saints' Eve, 1517, when Luther publicly objected to the way preacher John jo- Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences. And, and we'll find on, on here in just a few moments that um, uh, Luther was not the most kind, gentle man. Uh, in, in fact, as I read probably more about his life over the last week than I did through all of my Bible training I recognize that some would just plain say he was a mean man. And so he was the kind of guy that would not just sit idly by and allow something to be said that he knew was false. Some of you are wired like that, right? You can hear a lot of garbage and it's just not in, you don't have the fortitude to stand up. Some of us are wired just a little bit differently. And when we hear something that doesn't quite square with what we believe to be the truth of Scripture, there's just something inside of us that causes us to want to rise up. Somebody accused me yesterday of being Pastor Glenn Beck. I don't know if that's a good thing 
or, or, or not. I, I kind of looked at them and said, I'm not too sure. They asked me first how I felt about Glenn Beck, and then I told them how I felt about him, which I won't tell you this morning. And then they said, well, what would you say if I told you that you kind of remind me you're the pastoral version of him? And um, we'll save my comments about that for another time. But this is, this is the place that Luther found himself in. He found himself watching this preacher selling these indulgences. These were documents that were prepared by the church, and they were bought by individuals either for themselves or on behalf of other people, even dead people, that would release them from the punishment that, that they were due because of their sins. An incredible thing. So the church would prepare these documents, and preachers like Johann Tetzel would go out and they would, they would sell these indulgences. In fact, Tetzel once preached this, Once the coin into the coffer clings, the soul from purgatory, heavenward springs. That was the evil that was going on that spurred on the Great Reformation. Luther couldn't sit back and do nothing. And so in protest, Luther rapidly drew up 95 theses for debate which he nailed to the door of the castle church on October 31st, 1517. I can't give them to you all. I have a German friend that might have been here this morning, and I was going to have him read the 95 Theses in German. Wouldn't that have been cool? That would have been really awesome. I'm going to give you just three, and I'm going to give them to you in English, because I don't know German, basically. But they included statements like these. He wrote, Christians are to be taught that he who sees a man in need and passes him by and gives his money for pardons, purchasing not the indulgences of the Pope, but the indignation of God. In other words, if you know this to be good and you don't do it and you know it to be sin, you can't go and purchase something to cover that up. In fact, what you purchase is the indignation of God. They're going, oh, that's nice, Martin. Thanks for sharing that. That wasn't exactly the response. Number 51 of his 95, Christians are to be taught that it would be the Pope's wish, as it is his duty, to give of his own money to very many of those from whom certain hawkers of pardons cajole money, even though the church of St. Peter might have to be sold. Number 82, to wit, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and of the dire need of the souls that are there? if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church. The former reasons would be most just. The latter is most trivial. Imagine that. And he takes these points and he nails them to a door. He couldn't just put them on the internet. Wouldn't that have been awesome? And all of a sudden it could have just gone out over the whole, world, over the whole earth. Luther had just spoken against the elaborate plans of the Pope. Possibly the single most powerful man in the world at that time. I was struck this morning as we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when he wrote, This body they may kill. You see, we sing that and we go, This body they may kill. I'll I'll never have to die for these things. I mean, here I am in a comfortable building this morning. Can you imagine after he nailed these things to that castle door and him penning those words, this body they may kill? He lived the reality of that, people. He understood that these things were not palatable to those that controlled the world at that time. When translated and widely circulated, these theses brought on an explosive an explosion of anti-church feeling uh, that uh, wreaked this whole idea of indulgences. 
as you might uh, uh, understand. Uh, given practical application in this way, Luther's theology could no longer uh, go unnoticed. And so he came at once under ecclesiastical uh, pressure. And what we now know as the Reformation began. Events quickly accelerated and at a public debate in 1519, when Luther declared that a simple layman armed with the scriptures was superior to both Pope and councils without them, he was threatened with excommunication. That didn't go over so well. Luther replied, by the way, to uh, that threat with these three most important treatises. Some of you have read these. The Address to the Christian Nobility, the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and on the Freedom of a Christian. In the first, he argued that all Christians were priests. This is what we know to be. We'll teach it in our membership class here in just a few weeks. The priesthood of the believer. That the believer can go directly to God. We don't need to go through any other man, any other sinful human being. We can go directly to God. And you say, what's the big deal? That's a huge deal. That means you have the ability to be able to call upon God yourself. That's an incredible thing. In the second, he reduced the seven sacraments to two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate this morning. In the third, he told Christians they were free from the law, especially church laws, but they were bound in love to their neighbors. Do you understand how we got to where we are today and where we might not be today were it not for reformers, for men that had the fortitude to stand up and teach what was biblically right, what was biblically correct? By the time an imperial edict calling Luther a convicted heretic was issued, he was, uh, uh, there was an arranged kidnapping that took place uh, by soldiers of a man named Frederick the Wise. I read that this week and I thought, how do you get to be called something like that, right? I mean, do you just determine that I'm going to be Brian the Wise? From now on, call me, don't call me Brian, call me Brian the Wise. My dad's name was Frederick and he never did that, so it must not be just as easy as deciding uh, to call yourself that. But Frederick was a friend of Luther, and he arranged for him to be taken off to a place that even he did not know where Luther was going to be taken. Uh, That place, if you know your history, was the Wartburg Castle, where uh, historians tell us that he grew a beard and he hid for 10 months. And I've thought about this week, what would I do if I was taken away someplace where I didn't even know I was and nobody else knew where I was, what would I do? I guess maybe I would grow a beard. But that's probably where it stops for me. Uh, Luther, I think I just would have rested. Uh, No doubt he had no internet, he had no cable TV, he had none of those things. And so Luther grasped the opportunity to begin the work of translating the New Testament directly from Greek into simple German. Now that may not be significant to you until you understand uh, that uh, it served as a model for William Tyndale's English rendering which is pretty incredible to the church. In fact, we would not have the Bible that we have today, quite possibly, would it not have been for that time being spent in that translation from Greek into German. He finished this work in the fall of 1522, and he followed it up with an Old Testament translation uh, from the Hebrew. Uh, This, of course, took much longer, and that wasn't uh, completed until about uh, 1534. Uh, The completed uh, Luther Bible, by the way, proved to be no less tremendous a force in the German-speaking world than the King James Version did in the English sphere. It was an incredibly important event in history. And Luther, uh, his translation of 
the Greek text into the German language is considered to be one of his most valuable contributions to the German church. In early spring of 1522, he was able to return to Wittenberg to help lead this fledgling uh, reform uh, movement. Uh, There were others who were involved in uh, the Reformation, um, but as we have seen all the way through history, there were many of them that, as I mentioned earlier, did not have the fortitude of Martin Luther. He returned to Wittenberg, and at great personal risk, he continued to move these reforms uh, forward. I found out a lot of interesting things about his life uh, uh, this week that we don't have time for this morning. I encourage you uh, to get some of those texts that are out there of his life. I think you'll benefit greatly by understanding who this man was. Over the next uh, years, by the way, he married a a runaway nun. She's recorded historically. A runaway nun. I've, I've, I've seen some movies about runaway nuns, but I... I never really knew that they existed, but they did. He married a runaway nun by the name of Katharina von Bora, and that was scandalous for him. One of the other reforms of Martin Luther was that he uh, uh, basically tore down the walls of celibacy for clergy. Um, I am to be most grateful to him this morning for that, for that very purpose. I just thought about that. I, Justin, you wouldn't be here this morning were it not for Martin Luther. Think about that. This is an awesome, awesome thing. For Luther, in fact, he wrote in some of his uh, writings, the shock was waking up in the morning, as he put it, with pigtails on the pillow next to me. You can imagine a man who had been single for so much of his life and suddenly he uh, was married. It was, uh, it was quite an event. The history records, by the way, that they had a very happy life, which I think is an amazing thing given uh, the nature of this particular reformer. They had a happy life with six children. Uh, Luther continued to live in what had been the Augustinian uh, convent, and some of the students he had in for meals took down his conversation. And and in fact, it's now published in the volumes that uh, some of you have read called Table Talk. I was saying to some of our worship team this morning, can you imagine what it would have been like as a student to sit around the table of Martin Luther and just listen to him talk? If you've ever read Table Talk, you know there were some incredible things that came out of that man's mouth. His later years were spent often in both illness and furious activity. In 1531, in fact, though he was sick for six months and suffered from exhaustion, he preached 180 sermons and he wrote 15 tracts. And he worked on his Old Testament translations and took a number of uh, trips. In 1546, his body finally wore out and he died. You know, Luther's legacy is immense and it cannot be adequately summarized. It really can't. In fact, every Protestant reformer after him, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, uh, they were all inspired by Luther in one way or another. And, and our, uh, on a larger canvas, actually, his reforms uh, unleashed uh, the forces that ended the Middle Ages and unleashed the modern era. It has been said that uh, most libraries, uh, the books about Martin Luther, occupy more shelves than uh, any other figure except Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty incredible thing. The name of Martin Luther, however, is perpetually linked to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We could talk about a number of other things this morning, 
But if you walk away with nothing else, I want you to walk away with that. His rediscovery of this important truth was his greatest gift to the evangelical church. That doctrine, in fact, I want you to remember right now as we move to the Lord's table, is the reason why we can remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and we can remember it with confidence. Confidence that we know that while we owe a sin debt that we can't possibly pay on our own, that that Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe and he paid it for us. And by trusting in Christ alone as our Savior, our account can be marked paid in full. We are justified. What does justification mean? It means we're declared to be innocent because of the righteousness of God, which has been applied to our sin account. The justification is not based on how good you are. It's based solely on the shed blood of Jesus. When God sees the Christian, he, he sees him through the sacrifice of Jesus, and he, and he sees him without sin. That's an incredible thing. This declaration of innocence is not without, car, without cost, obviously. It cost Jesus his life. Innocent blood had to be shed on a cross for the redemption of mankind. In fact, Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. So here, here it is simply, without him, nothing. With him, everything. Let me ask you this, do you think that the Reformation matters? I think it matters in an incredible way. Think about what it would be like to sit here this morning hoping that you had done enough good. Hoping that you did not leave any little thought that you might have thought that might have been sinful unconfessed. Hoping that in the end, every I was dotted and every T was crossed so that hopefully you could stand before Jesus one day. Think about how different your life would be today, Christian, if that were the case. I think we owe a debt of gratitude to reformers like Martin Luther who were willing to give their lives for the hallowed truths of Scripture. To stand on sola scriptura, Bible alone. I want you to take these next uh, few moments and I want you to do two things. I I want you, number one, to thank God for those that have gone before us as we sang earlier those that have gone before us and in many cases paid the ultimate price in order for us to have truth and in order for truth to stand. And then secondly, if you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have been justified by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross. I want you to thank him for that. That means that your sin debt has been marked paid in full. There is no debt that needs to be paid. Your account is marked to telesty, paid in full. Thank God for that this morning. And also along with that, ask yourself, is there anything in your life that, that is separating you from enjoying sweet fellowship with the one who saved you this morning? So that you come to this table this morning uh, in, a, in a way which says, I have a right heart before God. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything other than Christ's finished work on the cross for your salvation, as I said earlier, you are to be eternally disappointed. 
For the gospel is just that, that we are saved by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is for by grace we are saved, through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works. It's all about him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Would you bow your heads and spend a few moments praying, thanking him for what you have in Christ? If you're yet to begin a personal relationship with Jesus, confess that you owe a debt that you can't pay and trust in his finished work on the cross as payment for your sin and begin that relationship with him today. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward at this time. just a moment. Younger sister, older sister, hard to believe, but I wasn't, my dad called me an agitator. I don't know where it came from. It's since left me for sure. But I remember this night so well when I was nine and, and I had heard the gospel. I had grown up in a Christian home and had heard Bible stories and had sat in children's church and vacation Bible school and all of those things. And it wasn't till a Sunday night when I was age nine that I was, that I was confronted with the truth of the gospel. And it wasn't some preacher that was in my face confronting me with the gospel. It was the Spirit of God that spoke to my heart and said, you are a sinner. It didn't take a lot to convince me of that. I can remember my mom coming into my room that night, and I told her, well, she sent me to my room, actually, that night. I still remember it like it was last night, and I said, I think I need to become a Christian. She spent no time arguing with me, um, and she led me through the gospel very simply, and I was so ready to receive that. And I have had an opportunity over the years uh, to be able to share uh, the good news of the gospel with many people and just see them them come to the come to the understanding of of who they are without Jesus and who they are because of the finished work of Christ. And I would say to you this morning that if you are here uh, without Jesus, real life has not yet begun for you. 
you may sit there and you may breathe and you may think life is good and life is, but real life has not begun. A, a, a person never really is alive until they enjoy the relationship that they were created to have when the sin debt has been marked paid in full and they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's when real life begins. Because of the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, where Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. <laughs> That's awesome. That's what Martin Luther came to understand that night in that monastery. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for me that I might be able to attain to the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. And that's what we celebrate here this morning. We don't go through just some ritualistic experience. This is about us remembering the sacrifice and how great it was for our sin. And that's what we do this morning.